0: Good evening to each one. Greetings in the name of Jesus. It is good to be together again. It's hard to believe this is the sixth time already that we're together to look into the Word. Time moves quickly. We know that, but there is always these reminders and it certainly feels like it has gone quickly, the time here with you. I do want to thank you all for... The hospitality you've shown me, the privilege of being in some of your homes and enjoying a meal with you, I've enjoyed that very much. And your attentiveness as I preach the word. I trust that God's spirit would continue to bring forth fruit in your lives. And to the youth here that sit right up on this front bench, that's so nice. It's good. I hope I didn't spit on you. You're almost close enough that I could have... It's good to see you here, and I pray that God will continue to bless your lives as well. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13 this evening. The title of the message tonight is the parable of your heart. And this parable is probably one of the most familiar parables in the scriptures. Also one of my favorites. And I want to look at it this evening again and see what spiritual lessons Jesus would have for us here. Let me start reading at verse 1 of I'm oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 13. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So the picture here, the context, Jesus has come out of a house. There is multitudes of people gathered there to hear him teach so that he can be heard more easily by this broad multitude. He goes into a boat, so he's just offshore in a boat and speaking to them on shore. In Luke's account, it tells us that they came from every city. There was a significant gathering of people that had come to hear Jesus. And he spake many things, it tells us in verse 3, unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no Root, they withered away, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. The story here, I just want you to capture the picture in your mind of what he's illustrating. It's a picture of a field, and you certainly are familiar with fields in this part of the world. There's lots of fields. Your fields are really flat for the most part, from what I've seen. But he's picturing a field with a path along the one side of the field. He's showing, or he's illustrating, or he's telling us that this field has some patches of stone. Do you have stones in this part of the world? (laughs) Areas where there's lots of stones, that's what he's talking about. There's some spots like that in this field. There's also an area in this field where there's thorns that have been growing. I don't know if it's close to a woodland and they've kind of migrated out of the woods and taken over that area of the field, but that they've been hacked down and chopped off and the farmers tried to get rid of them, but they're still there. You can see that there's evidence of thorn roots in that part of the field. And then there's also this rich black soil loaded with nutrients, ready for seed. And then you have a picture of this sower, a man, and a picture of a man with a bag of seed over his shoulder at his side and he enters the field and he just reaches into his bag and he grabs seed and he broadcasts that seed. He doesn't have a wonderful seed drill to lay it all down at the perfect depth. But it's just sowing by hand and he's throwing the seed and he's walking along the path and some lands on the path and some lands among these stones and some lands among the thorns and some falls on the good ground and the seed is spread all over the fields. And as this illustration goes further, it's like we are invited to come back to this field again and again and observe what has happened now with that seed over the next several weeks. And so I want you to do that in your mind. You come back to this field, you still see the path, and you notice as the man was sowing that there was seed falling on the path, and you notice there's some birds that have gathered already to gather up those seeds. And as you come back the next day, those seeds are all gone. The birds have eaten them all up. There's no more seeds on the path. As you come back day after day, you begin to notice that in those spots, especially where it's stony, the seeds have already popped up and there's a little bit of a green hue as the seeds are growing on top of those spots, first of all. And after a few more days, you notice that there's green showing now all across the field. It's starting to grow. This seed is Growing and it's headed towards producing fruit. A few more days as the summer wears on and the sun is getting hot in the daytime, you notice that these little seedlings that are growing among the so- stones are now starting to wilt by the time the afternoon sun has been beating on them for the day. And you notice that even though they popped up quickly and they started growing, they're now starting to die. And each day as you come back, in a few more days, you notice that they're not growing at all anymore. They have completely died in that stony area. You also notice that as you come back week after week, that among those thorns, even though the farmer hacked them all down and you tried to remove them, the roots are still in there, and those thorns have started growing up, and they've outpaced those little seedlings, and now the thorns are... You see thorns in that area of the field. No longer do you see this grain that should be growing there. And as you go over to that area and you look more closely, if you part the foliage of the thorns down there in underneath, you see these little seedlings desperately trying to grow, urgently needing light, can't get it. They're just kind of weak little plants down inside, sickly, straggly, barely alive, sunless plants that will never produce fruit. But you also see in other areas of the field, as this grain continues to grow, there's heads that form on the grain and it fills out into a beautiful harvest all across the field. In the areas where there's the most moisture and the soil is the best, you see a thick, thick crop with many heads of grain. In other areas where the soil is not quite as strong, you see that there is still grain, but it's a little more sparse but you see a bountiful, fruitful harvest. This is the illustration of this parable. This is the context of what Jesus is telling, the story. Now, Jesus is not primarily concerned about farming, all right? That's not the reason he tells this story. What is the main point here of this passage? Well, this evening I believe that the single greatest point is that the seed brings forth fruit. That is the most important point of this passage, that if it goes as intended, this seed will produce fruit. So what is the seed? Well, let's go to verse 18 now and read on as Jesus explains this parable. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, Then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which is sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. He that hath received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not rooted himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that understandeth it which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold some sixty and some thirty. The main point here is that there is Impact and power in the seed, the Word of God, which is able to produce fruit in the lives of broken, fallen men as that seed takes root. I appreciated the verses that were shared in the opening. It's such a beautiful thought. To recognize that God in his mercy, even though I was broken and sinful, he provided a way for me to be redeemed and for me to be fruitful in the kingdom of God. That is the power of this living word, the word of God. That's the seed. And we could spend a lot of time this evening talking about the Word of God. We are born again by the Word of God. It's the Word of God that brought about creation. The list is on and on and on of the things that the Word of God can do. It is the most powerful thing in our universe, the Word of God. And that Word is planted in our hearts. However, as Jesus also so brilliantly illustrates in this parable, there are many situations where the fruit or the impact of that word, if you will, is restricted. And that's what we want to consider this evening. Is this seed less powerful in those places? Is the problem with the seed? No. The problem is not with the seed. I do want us to notice, before we go on into these different types of soil that represent different hearts, that Jesus talks about four types of soil, four hearts, if you will. And in these four, three of them respond quickly and well to the Word, but only one of them brings forth fruit. That's sobering to me, that one in four in Jesus' story here actually brought forth fruit. So let's look first of all at the last soil type where the Word bears fruit, this heart. This is the intended result. He sowed the seed for this effect. The farmer didn't go out and spread seed on that ground so that it would wither away and die. He didn't spread seed so that the birds would eat it. He didn't spread seed so that it would die among the thorns. He spread seed so that it would grow and produce fruit. It talks here about this being one who has an honest and good heart. That is the intent of the gospel. A transformation has taken place. The stony heart was replaced with the heart of flesh, the Bible talks about. The new birth has taken place. The old creature has become a new creature. The old man has been taken away and cast aside, and the new man is given life by the Spirit of God. This transformation is talked about again and again in the Scriptures, and I just want to look at a few places. Romans chapter 6 where we see the impact of this Word, the impact of the Gospel on the hearts of those who are seeking to do His will. Romans chapter 6. Let me begin at verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were, past tense, the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you've been separated and freed from that, you became, that's present and future tense, the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to unrighteous, uncleanness, sorry, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. God meant by the power of the gospel to transform what happens with your members, with your flesh. Remember, we've talked about this multiple times this week. The purpose of the gospel is that the life of Jesus would be manifest in your flesh, in your members. That when you live your life, when you do life tomorrow, if I can say it that way, you would be representative of what Jesus would do. That's the purpose of the gospel. And as you do that day after day after day, those righteous deeds that come from the faith of the Lord Jesus are the pattern of life that is obedient and righteous and is what is bearing fruit. That is the intent of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 7, just back a few pages from our parable there. Just read a few verses in, from verse 16 to verse 20. You shall know them by their fruits. Again, the intention of the gospel is that the fruits change. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. I would just mention here as we think of fruits and this resulting thing it tells us about the true tree. If you see evil fruit in your life, the problem is not the fruit, okay? The problem is the root. That's the real problem. And I think sometimes we... We deal with the fruit, but we fail to deal with the root. God wants to change the root in our hearts to a good root, a good tree that brings forth good fruit. And of course, I want to take you yet to John chapter 15, the fruit bearing passage there as Jesus describes himself as the very juice, if you may, if you will, that flows through us and produces this fruit. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Just let me pause there. No matter how fruitful you are tonight, God's not done producing fruit in your life. He's going to continue to stimulate even more fruit-bearing in your life as you become more and more shaped into the image of Christ from glory to glory as we behold in, the, in open face the glory in His name, we change and we become more fruitful. Verse 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Again, see the power of the word there? You're clean because of it. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, never going to work. Unless Jesus is in us and flowing out of us, there will be no fruit. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Again, fruit-bearing is not for some elite group of Christians. It is for every single Christian. And if there's no fruit... He's saying here that branch is going to get caught up, cut off. It's going to be burned, thrown in the fire. There will be fruit wherever the seed has taken root, wherever that gospel has really gripped the heart, there will be fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, So have I loved you, continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Abide equals obey, equals keep, equals fruit. Christ's words and instructions plus your obedience by Christ's power will produce fruit. That's the recipe. And it happens in the life of every single Christian unless there's some other problem in that heart, in that life. The key here then is to keep the words. Our life should consist of what does the Bible say? And as we understand what the Bible says, we do it. That's what our life should consist of. I want to think about another part here then of the parable. Even though there was good soil and good seed... Was there immediately fruit in Jesus' parable? No, there was not immediately fruit. There was some period of time where there was consistency. And then there is fruit. There is an aspect of patience. There is a period of time with consistency, continuing to obey the words of Christ. And that is what fruit-bearing looks like. So don't necessarily look at a person's life and say, I see nothing right now. Well, what you should see is a life that is patterned after Christ and is obedient to Christ. And especially you young people here this evening, I wonder what you think of when you think of someone who is fruitful. It would be really interesting to hear your responses to that. How does it look for someone to be fruitful? I know when I was young, I would have pointed to... Certain individuals that had a lot of activity, a lot of action in their lives, and those were the ones that were fruitful. You know that Jesus actually tells us in also in Matthew 7, a little further in that passage, that there's lots of action where there is no fruit. He says that there are going to be many who are going to do wonderful works in his name. They're going to cast out demons in his name. They're going to do miracles in his name. And he says further to them that I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And I would just challenge us tonight to think about how do we measure someone who is fruitful. I want to tell you about a sister from our church that I look to And I would consider someone who has been very fruitful in her spiritual life. But you will never read about her in history. And you will never hear about her on Christian blogs or on Facebook or wherever else. She's in her 90s. She's been crippled all her life. She's never been married. She's had a lot of challenges. Today she is in a nursing home and she's increasingly unable to care for herself. But I have never seen her without a smile on her face. And I have never heard her complain about life circumstances for her, not one time. And every time I meet her, she is encouraging to me. Now, is that an impressive list of accomplishments? I guess it depends what you look at. But is there any doubt in my mind that the root of the fruit of the Word of God is producing Fruit in her life? None whatsoever. And I just challenge us, sometimes what we look at as fruitfulness is maybe not fruitfulness. The person who consistently obeys the Word of God and lives it out in all aspects of their practical daily life is someone who is truly fruitful for the Kingdom. Don't be misled or get a false measuring stick. It's easy to be drawn in a way. By what looks spirited. Not everything, brothers and sisters, that is spirited is spiritual. Okay, What is the root that is bearing that fruit? I want to notice as well in this passage that both when Jesus tells a story in verse 8 of Matthew 13 and again when he explains it in verse 23, he gives a variable of harvest here. And to me that is incredibly encouraging. All of these soils, the ones that brought forth thirty, and the ones that brought forth sixty, and the ones that brought forth a hundred, he calls good soil. And I know how all of us are we tend to look at others and we compare ourselves and we say, okay, I can never do what that person does, or I can't do what that person does. God knows that, okay? He's not asking you to produce a hundredfold fruit if you are 30 thirtyfold soil. He is completely satisfied with the best of what you can provide in your capabilities when you walk in obedience with God. That is 100% satisfying and glorifying to God. We don't need to measure ourselves by each other. I just need to be obedient and walk with Him. However... Do not get the impression that 30-fold obedience is sufficient for 100-fold understanding or 100-fold ability. I think we see lots of this in our day too where we don't want to be pushed too far. We don't want to get out of our comfort zone so we'll just kind of keep it. I'm happy with 30-fold. That's good enough. Well, God's not happy with 30-fold because He's going to keep pruning. He's going to seek to produce more fruit. So don't pat yourself on the back For some obedience when God is calling you to further obedience. Second category I want to look at now is the word snatched away. That is the first type of heart or the first type of soil. And we read of that in verse 4. When the sower sowed, some fell by the wayside and the fowls came and devoured them up. And Jesus explains what that is in verse 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and snatcheth away that which is sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. There is nothing the devil would love more than to snatch away the seed of the word before it can take root and produce fruit in our lives. He would love to have the seed have no impact at all, not even begin to grow, because he knows as much as we know and as much as God knows that that seed is tremendously powerful to transform the life. And the most effective way to stop the power of the seed is to snatch it away, to have the truth of it ignored, to have it rejected or forgotten. Now what is the problem in this type of soil? Why does it not produce fruit? The reason is because it's the path. Even though it's good soil, it's been packed down and hardened over time to where the seed cannot actually penetrate into the soil. That's what's wrong. The heart here, the hard heart, is an unprepared heart to receive truth or an unwilling heart to consider obedience. The phrase here, understandeth not. We might also say they don't obey or they refuse to see. If we study this passage, we get those concepts as well in the parallel passages. These individuals have a wall up. They're resistant to the truth. And I don't know about you, but I remember a time in my life where I would go to meetings like this. And before I ever went to the meeting, I was mentally preparing to be resistant to the words. That's what it's talking about here. And we may be tempted to quickly think that these are those outside of the church. But I want you to notice again that they do hear the word, okay? It's not that the word didn't land upon them. It's simply that they didn't receive it and it had no impact on them. And it's true that sometimes that happens outside of the church walls. I'm not minimizing that at all. But don't assume that it's just the world that we're talking about as the hard-hearted ones. It's also sometimes us and among us. How do we fall victim to these birds? I had to think about this, ponder my own experiences and experiences of those I've seen. And I wondered how many times that I have sat through the preaching of the word or studied the word on my own And I've made mental commitments, or at least I considered mental commitments, and nothing ever happened with those commitments. You know what I'm talking about? You're inspired by the word to do some right thing, but that right thing never gets accomplished. What's happening? Well, the bird got the seed. That's what happened. And it can be such simple things. There are a lot of different birds. It can be a distraction. Maybe you had good intentions to actually follow through with that obedience, but you have forgotten or you didn't actually follow through. It can be a conversation after the service that instead of that thought continuing in your mind, it goes away. Or it can be a resistant thought about embarrassment or what I might have to do or how I might have to change or what I might need to acknowledge. It can be the fear of following, that we would be called to do something for God that we're uncomfortable with. It can be a careless pursuit of earthly things and fun things. No time to actually think deeply about spiritual things because we can't stop, even in the time we're together to hear the word, thinking about what we'd rather be doing out there. I thought about King Agrippa. He had the seed sown. It tells us that he considered, he even verbalized that he was almost persuaded to become a Christian. But the seed had no impact, ultimately. The birds got the seed. It's also possible to have hidden sin and to be committed to that hidden sin and thereby hardening our hearts. If you came in here this evening with known disobedience in your life, hidden under a religious cloak, then your heart is hard. And the likelihood of the Word of God penetrating that heart diminishes every time you hear the Word and you refuse to respond. It's far more difficult for the seed to penetrate through that hiding and self-righteous, hardened heart. More often than not, the birds will get the seed when it's sown. And I pray that tonight, if that is you, that you would open your heart to seeking the truth, that you would turn from your sin, and that you would choose peace over pleasure. Another major bird that I think of in our time is the bird of thoughtlessness or carelessness. We cannot avail ourselves to the ability to understand. We aren't pursuing to deeply consider what the Word of God says. I can't count how many times I've heard someone say, I don't get it, or it just goes over my head. Well, what, it took 30 seconds of thinking and you gave up? Like What What have we become in our generation where if we can't find a YouTube video to tell us how to do it in thirty-three minutes, or we can't find a... Facebook article or some other post that's going to explain it to us in elementary language, then it's too complicated and I don't get it. I just throw up my hands. There is a real need for us in our day to have deep hunger for the Word of God. To ask, to knock, to seek, to hunger and thirst, to ponder deeply. Part of the reason that we have such shallow Christianity in our day is because we refuse to think deeply about the Word of God. It's amazing to me that we can spend 20 minutes on our hair. We'll spend an hour detailing our vehicle. We'll spend countless hours trying to get that perfect buck that we've been hunting. But we can't spend five minutes thinking deeply on what the Word of God means and how it might apply to what I should do in my life. Shame on us. That thoughtlessness, that carelessness is a very, very serious risk that the Word is snatched away And friends, just think of the power of that word, the loss, that heart that had that word snatched away, the loss there, the great loss is all ours. If that's us and the word is dropped upon us and we do nothing with it, it is a tragic loss for us. The third soil type that I want to look at tonight is the word on the rocks. And it's the stony places that it refers to in verse 5, and there's an instant response, talks about that in verses 20 and 21. But he that receiveth the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, he, by and by, he is offended. Again, notice here that there is a response, there is a hearing, there is an immediate obedience, an initial start, there is growth, the seed penetrates the soil, there's no problem there. But it says that they have no root in themselves. There's no endurance, there's no stick to itness. And I notice that it says here that it lacked moisture. It got too dry and it withered away. What a contrast from the words of Jesus in John 14 where he says, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a spring, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So what is the problem with the word on the rocks? The problem is not the power of the soil or the resources in the soil. The problem is clearly not the seed. The problem is a barrier between the nutrients of the soil and the ability of the plant to produce fruit. There is a hard stone, this rocks, that interferes with the ability of the soil. The problem is not the ability of the seed or the potential of the soil, but the presence of a barrier. So what is the barrier? What is this heat that caused the wilting? In Luke it tells us in time of temptation. Here it talks about tribulation and persecution because of the word. And in response, immediately they are offended or they fall away. How does this happen? What are the rocks practically? The word is calling them to something that's not happening and being therefore they do not produce fruit. Again, I pondered, what are these barriers? that would hinder fruit-bearing. I believe one of the greatest rocks or barriers is the unforgiveness. It bars a person from fruit. It puts a person firmly in disobedience. Jesus says so clearly that if you want to experience forgiveness, you must forgive others. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others their trespasses. In other words, just as it as I forgive, you forgive me. And Jesus makes that crystal clear later in that passage. There's no question that we are called to forgive. However, when we choose not to forgive, we refuse to Whatever has happened to us, the hurt that we feel is hindering us from forgiving. You know what's happening? We have stones in our soil. We're not going to bear fruit. And I could go on and on here on this point, but you know what it's like to be around someone that has not forgiven. You know the phrase, walking on eggshells? That's what it's like. They're easily offended. It's exactly what the Bible talks about here. I don't know what has happened to you in your life, and I don't know what you might be struggling with, but I tell you that if you do not forgive, you cannot bear fruit. You will not bear fruit. And along the way, you're going to cause all kinds of consequences for you and all those around you that love you. The fruit that comes forward on unforgiveness is bitterness that the Bible tells us is a root that spreads and defiles everything. And you might be sitting here in your mind, you're crying out, but you don't understand. I do understand that people do some awful things to each other. And I wish that didn't happen. But I do know as well that God provides forgiveness to the most wretched sinner. And I think of the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I don't think I'll be able to quote him exactly, but he said, When I have a small understanding of what God has done for me in forgiveness, then he says, I am ready to forgive anyone, anything. That's the parable of in Matthew 18 that Jesus gives of that servant that owed that debt of 10,000 talents. And then he went out and grabbed his fellow servant by the throat. It's a ridiculous picture. It makes no sense. We understand that. And I tell you tonight that no matter what you have been through, as hard as it may seem to you in the moment, there is nothing that compares to what Christ has forgiven us. And I would encourage you to look firmly in the face of the Lord Jesus and look at what he has done for you and stop focusing on what others have done for against you. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. And I'm not here tonight telling you that it should be forgiven. Forget if you still think about things in the past you haven't forgiven. That's nonsense. People that say that don't understand much about life. I'm just saying that bluntly. But forgiveness is a choice. And we choose to continue to forgive. And when that comes back to our minds, we remind ourselves that, no, I'm not going to hold on to that anymore because I chose to forgive. And when you do that, then you experience freedom. And the healing that happens in your soul, in your heart, while it may take time, while it may be painful in that healing, it will happen, and it will continue to happen. And you will be able to walk in a fruitful life more and more and more. What else are these stones? Well, another way to be a stony soil is to be resistant to correction. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning quite a bit when someone needs to be told something difficult. The relationship between truth and love and how it's important that we say it kindly and all those things are very important. But I've lived long enough to observe some people that I would call spiritual vagabonds basically. They move from one congregation to the next. And for a period of time, they are the heroes in the new congregation. And then people find out what their baggage that they've been dragging along. And the church there begins to try to help them and to reach out to them and encourage them to let go of whatever it is, the bitterness or the resentment towards leadership, whatever the sin problem they have is. They start to deal with that and it blows up and they move on because those people are just as bad as the last people, and they move around and they move around and they move around. And What is the problem? Stony soil that is resistant to correction. Another area that we see growing increasingly in our world, and I'm afraid is migrating into our churches as well, is this idea of victimhood, victim mentality. The belief that my struggles that I face in my life are the result of others' misdeeds. It's destroying us. It's destroying our world. It will destroy you too. It's a plague of our day. I tell you tonight that there are no victims in the Bible. You can try to find one for me if you'd like. There's a lot of awful things that happened. But there's no victims. There's only victors in the Lord Jesus. And just as one example, I tried to imagine what it must have been like when Paul was brought into the church and set forward as a pastor in the church after he had been the one that was persecuting and putting Christians to death as fast as he could. How welcome would he be in this pulpit if he had been the one that caused the murderous death of your husband or your wife or your child or your grandparents? Victims? No. Victors. Don't let that concept of victimhood take root in your life. It will destroy your fruitfulness as a Christian. The word on the rocks will never produce fruit. Rejecting truth to cling to unforgiveness or sin patterns or victimhood will always cause certain death spiritually. The barriers that block the potential of the soil. Finally, this evening I want to look at the word among thorns the word among thorns. These have heard, we read about them in verse 22. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. In Mark chapter 4 it says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things. I don't think that's necessarily an evil lust but a desire for things that can draw us away. What is the problem again here? I'd like to think about that. There's not a problem with the Word. We talked about that earlier. There's actually no problem with the soil here either. It's producing lots of things. It's just producing thorns instead of fruit. There's lots of power. The problem is that the energy of the soil is consumed by the wrong plants. The thorns are sucking up all the nutrients out of the soil, and there's none left that would actually produce fruit. And I had to think then about our resources. What are our resources? What does God want us to be using to bring forth glory and, and fruit in our lives? I thought about three things. Maybe you would come up with more. I'm not saying this is exhaustive, but our time, that is one of our resources. Our energy, both mental and physical energy, we have limited amounts of that. What are we using it for? And our money, our resources, our physical things, our financial means. So what is consuming our resources, our time, our energy, and our money? What are these things it talks about? Cares of this world. Duties and caring for stuff. More stuff, more cares. Cares. It's part of our problem in Western society. Riches. Talks about the deceitfulness of riches. There's not many of us in North American Mennonite churches that aren't rich. And we need to be aware of that. And there is a deceitfulness that goes with it. The Bible talks about the love of this, the love of money being the root of all evil. The Bible makes it clear that the wealthy are the least likely to enter heaven. You ever stop to consider that carefully? If you have been given wealth, then you are walking a tightrope spiritually. And if you don't do it well, you're going to fall aside and fall away. It's possible the Bible makes that clear. We see it in Luke. I think it's Luke 19. The story of Zacchaeus is an example of a rich man that found salvation. It also talks about the pleasures and lusts of other things. Brothers and sisters tonight, thorns... This thorny soil can be a lot of things, but I believe it's probably the biggest reason why we have limited fruit production in North America. Some parts of the world, Christianity doesn't struggle with this like we do here. We have excess of so much. We have excess time. We have excess resources. We have excess energy. I remember years ago an older man from our congregation that has passed away now, He remembers when they first started having youth functions in the Mennonite church. And a man came to pick up this young man. He was probably 17 or 18 at that time. Picked him up at 8.30 on a Friday night and they were going to go do something together as youth. And the grandpa that was walking in at that point said something like, Are you quitting early tonight? Like the work and the expectation of time in those days was very different than it is today. He also talked about when he got married. He had a little money box where he had all the resources that he owned in this little money box. And it wasn't very much. But since that time, we have progressively had more and more time, more and more money. Our work weeks get shorter and shorter, and we have spare time, as we say. And what do we do with that time? Now it can be, like I said, anything. Sewing, painting, friends, scrapbooking, gardening, baking, cooking, your vehicle, a well-groomed property, your business, career advancements, personal appearance, hunting, fishing, boating, ATVs, sports, social media, entertainment. The list will go on and on and on. If I didn't measure, mention the thorn that's growing in your life, I trust the Holy Spirit will. The problem for us is the problem of excess and inability for moderation. This has been said over the years, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. As Mennonites, we can do abstinence, but we don't do moderation very well. And I thought of the quote, I don't remember who to attribute it to, but it's very true, where the parents walk, the children will run. And parents bring in a little bit in their lives, And the children bring in a lot more. And as time goes on, there's just more and more and more. And I would just say this. If we find our resources don't reach for important spiritual things, like the spiritual disciplines that we know the Bible teaches, like Bible reading and prayer and fasting and witnessing, if we never have time or energy or left to do those things, maybe there's thorns growing in our lives. We better be aware of them when there are service needs around us, when we have summer Bible school happening and we can't find teachers, when we have missions that are crying out for staff and we have thousands of Mennonite members in North America but we can't get five to work on a mission field somewhere, maybe, just maybe, that's an indication that we have some thorns. Let me just give you some examples of how this moderation is so important. I don't cook much, so I'm going to try to give a cooking illustration, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm wrong. I'll be wrong. (coughs) That's okay. When you make a meal, ladies, you can make a meal that will feed your family in an hour's time. Right? Is that true? My wife says you can. I've never done it, so or not enough times to do it. Or you can spend three hours making a meal to feed your family. What's going to happen? Both ways are going to be nourished. But what did you do? You just invested an extra two hours of time into that thing that is simply going to be gone. So there's a place to make a nice meal and to do it well and so on. I'm not here to say that should never happen. But should it always happen? It's just an illustration of how we can spend excess time and we can waste our energy into something that shouldn't happen. Men, is it wrong to go hunting? Better hope I don't say it's wrong to go hunting, right? (laughs) No, is it wrong to go hunting? No. But I am a little concerned when there's church circles that cannot have meetings certain weeks because of the hunting calendar. What's the priority? Or when during a certain season of life, hunting season, your wife becomes a widow and your church sees you once in a while. Is that right? Is that? Is there nothing wrong with that kind of hunting either? (coughs) Somewhere there's a line where we move from what is okay, appropriate, occasional leisure to an addiction that is possessing us and consuming our money, our time, and our resources in a way that is unhealthy and is choking off the fruitfulness of the Word of God. The same can be said about business. I hear young men all the time, all ambitious about getting their own business going. You should think long and hard before you pursue that. You know how much it's going to take from you? A lot and I hear sometimes men with this two-year goals and five-year goals and ten-year goals they've got everything mapped out perfectly about how they're going to build their business you ask them about their spiritual goals and they just a glaze goes over their eyes they got nothing to say is that how it should be maybe we're out of balance again Watch out for thorns. If any category applies to us in North American Christianity, this one applies to us. And I believe the word will produce fruit, but not among thorns. Let's bow our heads to pray.